0: God bless. Good morning. morning. Happy Sunday to you guys. Glad you guys are here. And good morning to you guys watching online. We're going to pause, we're going to pray, and we're going to get started. It's always nice to be able to gather together. And hopefully you guys are going to be encouraged by one another and all that takes place here this morning. Let's pray. Father, I need this time. I think we need this time where we do pause and set aside the busyness of our day to remember you, to lean into who you are and and your desires for us, for our community. And we pray that we would be shaped by those desires that your will would be done here within our hearts as it is in heaven. Thank you again for opportunities like this, Lord, where we can take the time, acknowledge you, and listen. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Couple things to announce. Again, second and third Tuesday of the month, we have Art for Artists, which is the second Tuesday of the month. Um, I forget the date, but there is a slide. There it is, the 10th. And then the following is the Philosophy and Critical Thinking, and that's on the 17th. And Jordan's gonna be going through Coping. Uh, and then at the end of the month, we've got the Full Circle. Uh, that again is a time to get together and just have a community discussion. So those things are happening throughout this month as well as here Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. And a reminder too that Genesis is here for those who are here and watching online because of your donations and we thank you for that. It's allowing us to continue to do what we want to do here and we appreciate all those things. There's the ways that you can give uh, if you so desire. Well, I began a series last week on preaching, which is again so contrary to me because I'm kind of counter preachy. But I, I was thinking about Jesus' words when he's talking about proclaiming, which is preaching the gospel. What is it about this that is worth proclaiming? And I started last week with the story of Cain and Abel, which was unusual. Because it's such a dark story, but what we see is God entering into that darkness and communicating with Cain, appealing to him to make a good choice, and I feel like that is something that is still continuing today. And today I'm going to be continuing uh, another reason of why I feel it's, there's something worth preaching, there's something worth talking about, and again it may seem a little bit strange, Uh, But I think it's important, and I think it's a central theme to our faith, and it has to do with suffering. Preaching and suffering, those two things and how they fit together. Past Thursday, we had a, a gender reveal for my daughter And we found out it was a daughter, and I have never seen anyone so excited as she was when they cut the cake open, they saw it was pink, and she was ecstatic, and her little pregnant body is dancing around, and she was jazzed. And we were just excited as well, and we were just celebrating that time together. And as we were there celebrating, on their TV, they have playing just different pictures, right, that kind of scroll through through their Apple TV, and there was a picture of my mom. And immediately I thought, she's not here to enjoy this. She will never get to meet this little girl. And even more, I think, for me, was this little girl will never get to be spoiled by my mom, because she could spoil those grandkids. I'm not bitter. Um, She treated me good. But man, she treats the grandkids really good. But it, it's strange how joy and sorrow can live so close together in, in so many ways. This morning, when I got here, I was kind of cleaning up out in front here, and there's probably about 100 cigarette butts out in the parking lot. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? And then I remembered Friday night we have the AA meeting here. And, and You know, they don't drink anymore, but man, they could smoke to try and help stop drinking, right? And there was something beautiful that was there, even though they're nasty cigarette butts. And this is kind of how life is. Scriptures document the suffering of people throughout. From Cain and Abel through Hagar getting basically raped, impregnated by Abraham and kicked out, we have stories of Job, to, all the way to Jesus and the cross and his disciples being persecuted. Scripture is full of these stories of suffering. And in fact, there is a book that is just about suffering called Lamentations. And that's what I want to look at today. And so again, we're going to talk about what's worth preaching, and I'm going to talk about the book of Lamentations, because I think it's important. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open up to Lamentations chapter one. If not, it'll be on the screen as I'm going through it. And Lamentations is a series of five poems, five chapters and they're their poems. And the author is communicating something through these five poems. And we're not going to go through all of them, but I want to look at this first one in, in little bits. And it starts in verse one and it says, How deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. The author begins with a city that is vacant and then gives that city emotions and begins to refer to it as a woman who was once great but is now a widow and a slave. And she is weeping bitterly and no one is there to comfort her. It is a dark and sad picture. And then the, the poet gives some more information in verse 3. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. And and now describing some of the most influential events, the the poet names the city Judah. It it is part of where the poet comes from. It, It was their home and... This is one of the most important events throughout the the Jewish history and even the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament for us. And it has to do with the Babylonian exile. Now, the nation of Israel would become Judah and was established, you know, about 1,000 BCE. Four centuries later, which is longer than the U.S. has been around a superpower known as Babylon in 586 BCE launched a full assault on Jerusalem, overwhelmed the army of Israel, and Judah fell. After conquering Jerusalem, they were forced to go back to Babylon. They had to leave their home and go to another land and become citizens in a sense, but slaves in that land. They had to eat their food. They had to learn their ways. And the whole idea of Babylon was to assimilate them, have them marry into their families so that they would basically disappear. And all their identity would become overwhelmed with the Babylonian identity. Imagine moving from this place of your home, your security to another land and having to leave all those things that were a part of you. There's no more Netflix, no more Instagram, no more in and out right? You have to eat whatever the food was that they were eating. <laughs> Imagine all the loss that they felt, families being separated The music that you would hear, the songs you would sing, the things that you would see, the sights that you become accustomed to, they're gone. And the Babylonian exile is a traumatic event that shapes the entire Hebrew Bible. And if we don't recognize that, we have a hard time sometimes understanding the meaning of some of the writings that are there because they are writing from a place looking at what has happened to them. The poet goes on in verse four, says the roads to Zion mourn for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her young women grieve and she is in bitter anguish. The exile affected everything from their faith to their procreation and the reproduction of Israelites. You would think that the poet would talk about how evil these Babylonians are, what what a crime this is that this took place. But there's a strange twist. Notice in verse five, her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile captive before the foe. Now that's interesting, right? Babylonian attacks the nation But here, the poet says, it's God who caused this. And that should make us pause and wonder, how do you get to the conclusion that God sent the Babylonians to attack us? Well, the way you get there is by going back in their history, a few books, to the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, to understand the book of Lamentations, you have to go through the book of Deuteronomy. Because when it talks about this kind of thing where it says, you know, the Lord has caused grief because of her many sins, what they're referring to is the Mosaic covenant that we see at the end of Deuteronomy. And and you guys might be familiar with this, you know, where Moses is commanding the children of Israel to to go into the promised land. And if they're gonna go into the promised land, they they have to do well by God, right? And, And... it's important that they understand before you get in there, not so fast, you gotta kind of keep this in mind, right? Read the fine print. Before you get to this land of promise, there are some conditions and you gotta follow these conditions. Otherwise, it's not gonna go well for you. So apparently, there is a condition to the promised land. Maybe it should be called the conditional promised land because in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 17 We read, but if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. So the promise is dependent on if they are loyal and if they are faithful exclusively to God. Otherwise, they will be removed by God from the land. If you're good to God, then God will be good to you. But if you're not good to God, then he will be really bad to you. Now, that's kind of a dynamic that we have grown up living in. If you're good to God, God will be good to you. But if you're not good to God, well then bad things can happen to you. And pretty soon, we have what happened to, to Job. Job suffers these things, and everyone thinks, well, it's because you did wrong, Job. And Job said, no, I didn't do wrong. And his friends, no, you must have. God wouldn't do this if you didn't do something wrong. What did you do, Job? I didn't do anything. In verse 8 of Lamentation says, Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. At this point, the book seems to be a big, I told you so. If you just would have listened, this wouldn't have happened to you. If you were only better, if you were more religious, things would have been different. You wouldn't have been captives, exiled, homeless. But just when you think things are black and white, yes, God is like this, and yes, we are like that, and this all makes sense. The prophet, poet, is interrupted by the city's voice. And now we have to step back at this point and understand that this type of language was common and how people tried to understand why good and bad things happened. It's not with individuals, well, these people did bad things, it becomes with the whole nation. What about the good people in the nation? Do they have to suffer because of what the bad people did? And there's this trying to figure it out, and so, like, well, it must be God. It's kind of their reasoning. And verse 11, The second portion of verse 11, it says, "'Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised.'" This is now the city talking to the Lord. It's pleading its case to God. Verse 12, "'Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by, "'look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow "'which was brought upon me, "'which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger?' From on high he sent fire into my bones and made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, and they were fastened together, and they were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into his hands, and to those who I cannot withstand, the Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comfort is far from me. One to revive my spirit, my children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. This is an emotional plea. Imagine living at this time, hearing these words and how you would relate, how they'd be like, God, what the heck is going on? The city is crying what the poet is feeling. Look at how bad things are. Jumping down to verse 21 They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. They is the enemies. All my enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I. Let their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint." Now, this is a powerful turn that we can miss if we are not in tune with what's going on. What the poet is saying, look at how bad things are. This is beyond our ability to withstand. But the people who are as evil as us, maybe even more evil than us, they are fine. Why don't you do to them... What we think you've done to us. And that's how the first poem ends, which is pretty heavy. And here we see the two characters, the narrator and the city. The poet tells the city, they got what's coming to them. The city responds, fine, but do you realize how bad it is? How much we are suffering? And furthermore, why aren't those around us who are doing evil suffering like we are? It seems like this promise that you gave, this covenant that you made with us, isn't a blessing, it's a cursing. These people who aren't in this covenant, aren't in this promise, are doing good. We who had this relationship aren't doing good. So much for if you do good, Good things will happen. What about these people? They're not doing good. And good still happens. Dr. Adele Berlin in her commentary on the book of Lamentation writes that the entire book of Lamentations may be thought of as an appeal for God's mercy, yet God remains silent. That's the point of the whole book cry for mercy and silence. What's that book doing in our Bible, right? Don't we want a happy ending? I mean, even Job got his money in his house, even some kids back, right? I mean, he, he got his stuff back. Here, there is silence. Wouldn't someone say, I think we should put another book instead of this one when they were compiling all this. Wouldn't someone say, You know, I don't like the way that one ends. Maybe we can add something to it. What do we do with this? Do we study it? Do we apply it? Does this have any value for us today? And I think overwhelmingly, yes. We've actually gone through this book twice. And I think it is one of the most important books in scripture that helps us to get past the simplistic, dualistic way of thinking. If you do this, God has to do that. If you do that, God has to do this. And we see that it just doesn't happen that way sometimes. And if we could sit in the emotion of this book, I believe it would change our understanding not only of God, but of ourselves. I think the first reason we need to look at this book and see its importance is because of what takes place after this exile, right? After the captivity in 586 BCE, for 47 long years, the people of Judah lived without any hope of returning to Jerusalem. In fact, the book of Jeremiah talks about that. Everyone's favorite verse, Jeremiah 29:11. I know the thoughts I have towards you, says the Lord. The whole point of that is you're gonna be here a while, so make peace with the people around you and get comfortable. That's where they were at when those things were being written. That's their understanding of these things. But then a bigger, more powerful superpower from the East would come alongside and conquer Babylon It'd be the Persians with Cyrus. And when Cyrus came in and conquered Babylon, he came upon this group of people, and he's like, who are you guys? And we're, we're Judah. And he goes, what are you doing here? Well, we were conquered. And, and he says, well, why don't you guys go back to your land? And I'll help you guys to rebuild. And that's where we get Nehemiah, and that's where we get Ezra, where they are actually commissioned to go and build. And that's what Persia did to a lot of people. They helped them to build their places of worship because Persia, even though they were dominating, but they were a little nicer. They just taxed the heck out of them, right? Hey, I'm going to give you guys your land back, but you're going to have to be subject to us. And so we see that that takes place. They were There for about 350 years, back in their land, back establishing until they became independent once again after Persia too fell. And so it's believed that during that time, after they became independent, is when they started compiling the books to put them together to make what we see in the Old Testament. And this is important because of this you have gone through this horrific exile. Your nation has almost been wiped off the face of the earth. But, miraculously, you've gone back to the land and you've gotten established. What books are you going to include to be a part of your sacred texts Aren't they going to be books that just say, look at how God was faithful. Look what God did. Yes, he is true to his people. And then someone stands up and he says, I think we should put the book of Lamentations where we cried out to God and God was silent. How would that go over? Who's the one who pitched that, right? Who's the person who said, we should have this book in there? Dude, you're raining on our parade, man. Don't you see how good things have become? Why would you want to remember that? We need to include the writings of when our ancestors were in exile and thought they would never taste freedom again because their voice is important as well. They learned something at that time, didn't they? Let me ask you a question. When you have been in a metaphorical exile, when you have had to go through dark times, maybe losing a loved one to cancer, maybe it's suffering from physical ailment yourself, maybe loss of a job, maybe struggling with addiction. When you are going through something that is dark, what happens to you at those times? It changes you. What happens to your picture of God through those times? Does it stay the same? It usually has to change. And it usually becomes uncomfortably bigger. It's not how we'd want to grow. But oftentimes it is how we do grow. It's not nicer, but it's bigger. I think most of us at one time thought, if I'm good to God, God will be good to me. But we've gone through an exile, and we thought, this is too much. And we felt like the voice was silent. At least I have. Most of the people who I'm close to have. I know there's some and they kind of bug me, you know, that are just like, no, everything's good. And oh, praise God. It's like, ah, I, I'm just hurting right now. And that's not helping. And that's not even relating to me. The author of Hebrews in chapter five, verse eight says, Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, wait a second, maybe obedience means more than what I thought it meant. And maybe suffering means more than what I think it means. Maybe obedience isn't just about doing right things. Maybe obedience has to do with learning life things. We need to learn from this book that being good does not immunize you from the world's suffering, or make us more loved by God. And another reason that this is so important, I think, is to give us permission to question, permission to doubt, that God is actually encountered in the question, in the silence, in the struggle, and even in the pain. And this isn't new or progressive. This is actually part of the tradition of real experience in life. This was kept here for this reason so that we could remember what it's like to sit in the struggle and in the silence. You know, when people say, I can't believe in God because there is so much suffering in the world, little do they realize they are standing with ancestors of our faith. And they are probably closer to God than they understand because in that pain, he is present. In that question, he is there. In the struggle, he is in the midst One more reason that is important is that it's our suffering that we are able to pause. In our suffering, we are able to pause and sit with those who also suffer. Paul would tell us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I believe that most movements of compassion begin when we sit with those who are in pain like The city was in pain. And hear them say, This isn't right. And are moved by their voices, moved by their pain, to step in and try to intervene. The word compassion comes from the Latin word compassio, which means to suffer alongside. What makes this faith worth preaching is that it cannot merely be explained, but it is entangled with the experience and emotion that touches us all and connects us all. And the last thing we want to do is numb ourselves from the struggle and from the apparent silence sometimes that we feel through those times of struggle. I'll just throw a verse in my mind to make me feel everything is okay, but inside I am dying. Instead of just sitting in that pain and saying, God, do you see this? Cause this does not seem right. This does not feel good. I don't like it here. And why are you silent? I've said this before, I don't think I could be a part of a faith where God did not weep. And when we read in scripture that Jesus wept, it is in line with all those who have wept before him. It is in solidarity with humanity in the question when he cried out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" He is identifying with the psalmist who felt the same way as we're reading here in Lamentations, "God, where are you? Because I don't see you, I don't hear you, I don't feel you." And God doesn't try to remove that, doesn't try to make you feel it's okay. He allows you to sit in that because there is something taking place within us that is anchoring our souls to one another and I believe to the very heart of God as well. We make this faith worth preaching. It's not merely explained, but it's entangled with the experience and emotion that touches us all. So when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him pick up his cross and follow me, it's asking us to live alongside not only good, the easy, the blessing, but to live alongside the suffering of humanity as well. And the book of Lamentation is part of what is being preached. And we don't like it, and it doesn't make us comfortable And you won't find out on any of your little promise things. But it is so close to the heart of every one of us. If we were honest. And honest is what God is wanting for each of us. Let's pray. God, even as I have shared these things, I am aware of people who are in the midst of the struggle. Even as I'm going to do a memorial service after our time here, I know there are people who are hurting for someone they've lost. Lord, I know there are people who are still at home and paralyzed with fear and depression (laughs) since the pandemic. I know there are people who are sick and not feeling well, who are struggling just to cope. Lord, I I don't have an answer. I, I don't have the ability to bring about change, but I believe I can have compassion. I believe that I can sit in silence with those who are hurting. And I believe you sit in silence with us when we hurt. In some way, may we understand that this is good news. May we not feel that we have to fix everything. But may we be willing to sit where people are when they need us to ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to have a time afterwards for some questions and thoughts with you guys who are here. But may you not be quick to leave the places of discomfort and not sit and learn from those who have gone before you. that Though God is silent, you are not alone. God bless you guys. Have a great day. You have been listening to the Genesis podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com